Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Point and Click Radio. This is the bi-weekly computer show here on KZYX, the place where we answer your computer questions and bring you the latest computer and internet news. I'm Jim Hyde. And I'm Toby Molina at the Point and Click Research Desk. We've got a lot of good stuff for you in the next hour. A grab bag of news items to start out with, and then in our second half hour, we talk with Annie Rauda. She is the creator and curator of a fascinating set of social media accounts, primarily on Instagram, called Depths of Wikipedia, where she spotlights some of the bizarre, funny, weird, charming, and more entries that you'll find on that vast online encyclopedia known as Wikipedia. But we begin tonight with a story that seems strange, but it actually happened. Imagine you're driving down the road and you're listening to a radio station and all of a sudden your car radio goes dead. And not just dead, but like really dead, like broken. That actually happened. And uh, Toby at the Point and Click Research Desk has the details. This actually happened in Seattle and the problem began on January 30th and affected Mazdas from model years 2014 to 2017 that were tuned into the local NPR radio station, KUOW, uh, 94.9. At some point during the day's broadcast, a signal from KUOW caused the Mazda's infotainment systems to crash. (laughs) The screens died and the radios were stuck at 94.9. And from there, those infotainment systems became trapped in a rebooting loop. never successfully able to fully reboot. So what happened? Was this that station's way of forcing you to become a member and getting your NPR tote bag? (laughs) It seems ingenious, and yet no. Let's not try that here. Because although the radios were stuck at 94.9, they couldn't be used. (laughs) Okay. Um, And uh, when the afflicted owners took their cars to be checked at their local Mazda dealers, they were told that the connectivity master unit or CMU, was dead and needed to be replaced. (laughs) And the snag is that a new CMU is $1,500. If you can find one, uh, because supply chain things being what they are, they're very, very hard to come by. So uh, according to Mazda, the problem was that the radio station sent out image files in its HD radio stream that did not have extensions. And it seems that the Mazda infotainment <laughs> systems of that generation need an extension to tell what the file is. So that's like this little dot, dot DOC. Yes, or... correct. <laughs> oh, man. So no extension, no idea, and the entire system gets corrupted. Talk about a tale from the digital wonderland. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately what happened is that um, the Mazda is going to provide these fixes free of charge. Um, these customers are told to contact their local Mazda dealer who can submit a goodwill request to the Mazda warranty department on their behalf, order the part, and then schedule a free repair when the parts arrive. And this happened in January. Those people may still be waiting. I don't really know. Yeah, right. That's incredible. Somebody, some person was responsible for that. Someone really messed up. Yeah. Wow. Oops. When a radio signal causes your radio to not just die, but be bricked. Yeah, that was it. They were dead. And you know, it's scary with cars basically being computers with tires that there could be other 
systems in a car, particularly in some of the newest cars, like Teslas that require over-the-air, or not require, but can use over-the-air software updates, that it's not impossible to think that something like that could brick your car. Oh, I know people who I know people who have Teslas that have bricked. <laughs> <laughs> and then the car has to be put on a flatbed and brought to so the East Bay to be fixed. So that the operating system can be reinstalled. <laughs> yeah, so the car can be rebooted. Wow. Yeah. Tales from the Digital Wonderland. Wow. Well, I hope that um, the folks at the uh, at the at the public radio station in Seattle have also taken a lesson to include file extensions uh, f- before their next pledge drive. <laughs> I would assume so. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of pledge drives, it's worth noting that we are in our quiet drive here at KZYX. We are working toward a goal of $150,000 to support the building fund, the new studio in Ukiah, keeping our signal strong and our theme moving forward together. This is your chance to become a member of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. The easiest way to do that since you're listening to a computer show is to go to kzyx.org and click the donate button. There are some interesting pledge premiums, including commemorative building fund mugs, which will be available for donations of $150 or more. So go to the website, kzyx.org, and please become a member and support your local community radio station. Well, we mentioned Tesla a couple of minutes ago, and its CEO, Elon Musk, is yet again in the news, this time because he has purchased a big chunk of Twitter, the social network. On Monday, a regulatory filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission revealed that Mr. Musk has bought a 9.2% stake in Twitter, the social media platform where he has over 80 million followers. Reading here from a New York Times article, the purchase appears to make Mr. Musk Twitter's largest shareholder, ahead of the 8.8% stake owned by the mutual fund company Vanguard, and dwarfing the 2.3% stake of Jack Dorsey, Twitter's former chief executive. Musk is wildly popular on Twitter. He has over 80 million followers, and he tweets about pretty much everything. In fact, he has gotten into trouble with the Security and Exchange Commission, Sometimes in talking about stock-related matters relating to uh, re- relating to uh, one of his companies, Tesla. Continuing again from that New York Times article, what exactly Mr. Musk plans to do with his Twitter stake is unclear. He has criticized the company in recent weeks for failing, in his view, to adhere to free, free speech principles, and he has argued that users should be allowed to choose the algorithms that select the tweets they see or build their own instead of relying on Twitter to curate posts. It's unclear whether he will be asked or invited to join Twitter's board. The kind of filing that he uh, uh, filed indicates that he plans for the investment to be passive and that he did not intend to pursue control of the company. We'll see if that stands over time. Now we head east for this story. A Yale finance director stole $40 million in computers to resell. (laughs) <laughs> this is the the Yale University School of Medicine, 
A now former finance director stole tablet computers and other equipment worth 40 million bucks and resold them for a profit. So starting in about 2013, she, she started working at Yale in 2008. Her name is Janie, Jamie Patrone. Um, and she began ordering pricey gear for herself starting in 2013. Thousands of orders for equipment and management did not bat an eye for several years. She often explained the equipment was being used to overhaul the department systems and support studies that didn't actually exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny and yet not funny. $40 million that taken out of a higher learning institution is horrifying. Yeah, big time. She uh, last week pled guilty to one count of wire fraud and one count of filing a false tax return, crimes that are related to the theft of thousands of dollars of electronic devices from her former employer. <laughs> An audit of her records revealed that she had arranged to buy approximately 8,000 iPads and Surface Pro tablets <laughs> since January of 2021 alone. Over the course of about three months that year, um, from May to about August, she ordered electronics totaling nearly $2.1 million. Amazing. And all yeah. this stuff was sent to an address in New York linked to a company called Thinking Mac LLC, which was connected to a man named Alan Lamb. You can't make this stuff up. He was not on the Lamb. Alan Lamb, who had been previously convicted for enterprise corruption, prosecutors claimed. Uh, what's interesting is that she didn't get caught until she made the deadly mistake of not paying her taxes on mm -hmm. all of this. So from tax years 2013 to 2016, she falsely claimed the cost of the devices as business expenses. And uh, from 2017 to 2020, she didn't file any taxes at all. <sighs> so she, I think, technically owns the owes the government about $6.4 million. <laughs> and apparently she used her ill-gotten gains to buy expensive cars and, and houses, the feds claimed, reading here from an article in the register. As part of the case, she will give up some of these assets, including a Mercedes-Benz G550, a Range Rover, a, a couple of Cadillac Escalades, a 2020 Mercedes uh, Model E450A, that's an expensive car, and a 2018 Dodge Charger, and will also liquidate three three properties in Connecticut, and a home in Georgia. And uh, the total loss for the university, as we said up front, is about $40.5 million. And she faces about, I think, a maximum of 20 years uh, behind bars. And she's expected to be sentenced in June. Wow. You're listening to Point and Click Radio, the computer show here on KZYX. Jim Hyde, yours truly, with you alongside Toby Molina at the Point and Click Research Desk. Bob Lawton has the night off, and this next story is one that I know Bob, a longtime Mac user, well, and you, Toby, another longtime Mac user. And you, Jim. Will enjoy just as much as I did, <laughs> and that is the availability of a couple of ancient Macs that run on your web browser. Let me explain. A programmer has created emulators that run in perfect with perfect faithfulness the old Mac System 7 and old Mac System 8. And to go to, to try one of them out, you can go to system7.app. That's instead of a .com, it's .app. That's system7.app. 
and you can go to those addresses on your desktop computer, your Windows computer. You can go to them on your phone or your iPad and actually run what is an equivalent of an older color Macintosh complete with productivity software like Microsoft Word, like Photoshop, Mac Paint, Acrobat Reader, classic Mac games like Glider, Lemmings, and the Marathon series, and you can even run HyperCard. And for me as a Mac veteran, well, dating back to 1984, it is a real trip and a trip down memory lane to see the Macintosh operating system and those applications, things like Microsoft Word and HyperCard and Photoshop that I spent so many hours in back in the day running on, well, on my phone, that's just kind of mind blowing, but in a browser window. And these applications all completely work. You can run Microsoft Word 5.1, which is a what, circa 1996 or so version of, uh, or maybe even earlier version of Word um, on your phone or on your iPad or on your Windows machine or your Mac. And it completely works. You can actually write documents and use search and replace and use fonts and save it. And there's even a way to be able to save your documents to what they call the outside world so that you can write something or create something in Mac Paint and actually get it out onto whatever device you're running the emulator on. And to me, um, this is a testament to really a couple of things. One is the fact that computer processors have gotten so incredibly fast. Um, when you start up the uh, System 7 emulator, it runs way faster than the Macs themselves did back then. It starts up almost instantly and you launch Microsoft Word and it launches almost immediately. And it's amazing to me that today's processors are able to imitate the processors of that era and run operating systems of that era and not only imitate them, but run them better and faster than the computers back then could. And the other thing that it's really a testament to, to me, is the fact that there's almost nothing that can't be run inside a web browser these days. There are free online photo editors, equivalents to Photoshop, maybe not equivalents in terms of the overall feature set, but programs that let you alter and enhance photos that run completely in a web browser. And there's the, uh, and the, the Google Docs, the free uh, Google suite that we run all the time. Yeah, there's a host of free tools that you can use in the browser from Google. Um, all you need is a Gmail address. Yeah. And then you can go to docs.google.com and there's a, there's a spreadsheet, there's a, a presentation program. Google Calendar, Google Drive, Gmail. And, and the, I really like the free Google uh, productivity apps. They're really kind of streamlined and very clean. One of the things that's so nice about the Google productivity apps is that they were created to be used in the browser. Mm. A lot of tools like Microsoft products and, and other older tools that have then been retrofit for the web um, aren't as elegant, don't work as easily, you don't share as easily. They just, there's something about the Google, um, particularly Google Docs and Google Sheets and sharing and being able to work together. Um, they're elegant yeah. and they're easy. I mean, everything has its problems, of course, but the fact is it's free. It's, it's free. That's a good price. Um, and uh, all you need is a Gmail address to be able to share 
your content with somebody else and work on it together. And that's that whole collaboration piece is a really important one and something that I think a lot of the old school, like the legacy apps, like you mentioned, Microsoft Word, don't do as well. But you can have multiple people working on a Google word processor doc, for example, at the same time. And if you're signed in and Toby is signed in, both people can be typing and the doc just kind of changes and updates even yeah. as people are making the change. And it's a really, it's kind of a cool thing to watch and you can add comments and, you know, did you really mean this? Is that figure really accurate? And things like that. And there's also history. You can see what happened. Yeah. Unless if you have to turn it on in a document, you can see what's changed over time because if you give somebody editing privileges, they can make changes that you can't necessarily see in the original documents. Um, you don't know what's happened. And then if you go to the history, you can see all the changes that have been made. Yeah, very, and you, very can even, you can even step back. You can dial yeah. back to a certain version. Like, you know, boy, we, we really went kind of off the rails with that document the last couple of days. Let's go back to Monday's version. And you can do that. Another thing I would want to recommend um, on the free uh, tip is Google News. Oh. Google News is free. And you can set up alerts, Google Alerts. And so I have certain uh, alerts that I, you know, my brother is an actor. And so his, I have an alert uh, set up for his name. And whenever he pops up, I get an email from That's Google cool. alerts using Google news um, with any reference. So if there's anything that you are particularly into, or you want to find out about, or you want to make sure that if uh, news is breaking about a certain topic or person or whatever, yeah. um, take advantage of that free service. Yeah, if you want to, you know, if you're if you're an activist and you're following, um, you know, climate change matters or offshore drilling issues or something like that, um, you can do a Google News search and then create an alert for it. And then, as Toby said, anytime there is an article, and this isn't just this is an article across the vast web. This can appear in newspapers. These articles can originate in universities or who knows where. You know, something that you had, of course, to keep in mind is that Google isn't doing this just out of the kindness of their hearts. No, no. You know, you need to be using Chrome uh, <laughs> to get the Google alerts and Chrome is going to serve up ads and Chrome is going to track you to a certain degree. Of course, you can um, you can um, uh, increase your privacy and uh, by, by working on your settings and, and making it they're still going to attract something from you. Sure. Uh, turn off cookies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, you, this is the Google Alerts is in Chrome, um, and so there's a certain uh, amount of Googleness that Google-ness. comes with that. Yeah, but it still is a great way to um, keep tabs on certain search queries or certain topics that are of interest to you um, without having to repeatedly go to the web and uh, do it by hand. So that's kind of a whole wide world of stuff that can run in your browser, all the way from running 15-year-old, 25-year-old Macs in your web browser, on your phone if you want to, um, all the way through to including um, apps that run in your web browser, like the Google apps that are, uh, that are free, provided that you understand that Google is going to be collecting some information about you. So we talked about being able to run an ancient Mac in your web browser or on your phone, but there are other not-so-ancient Macs that are about to be headed to the Apple's obsolete list. Well, rumor has it anyway. Yes. According to a report by Mac Rumors, and I'm reading here from a Macworld.com article, Apple is planning to add three MacBooks to its obsolete list at the end of April this month, meaning you'll have a very hard time getting them fixed. All three models are from mid-2014. The 11-inch MacBook Air, 
the 13-inch the 13 MacBook Air and the 13-inch MacBook Pro. The MacRumors.com website saw an internal memo about those three products, um, all of which were discontinued around 2016 or so. But it turns out, and I did not know this, that Apple labels products as obsolete after it stopped selling them for more than seven years. And then Apple, and this is Apple's official uh, uh, language here, discontinues all hardware service for obsolete products with the sole exception of Mac notebooks that are eligible for an additional battery-only repair period. Service providers cannot order parts for obsolete products. What's also interesting is that there's another category um, called vintage. Okay. Um, and those are, uh, that's hardware that Apple has stopped distributing for sale more than five years and less than seven years. <laughs> so it's active, vintage, and then obsolete. Oh, man. Which category do I fall into? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's, boy, you know, I wonder what our friends at MacFixit.com, which, uh, uh, which we've talked to on the show before and who are very active in the right to repair movement and sell all kinds of gear aimed at enabling us folks to be able to repair uh, computers, like be able to replace screens and things that have typically been the province only of, of, uh, of you know, authorized technicians. Um, but it's amazing that an, a, mach a machine that was discontinued only, what, five or six years ago can be designated as obsolete to the point where you can't even get like official parts from Apple anymore. I imagine a lot of that older stuff will still be able to be fixed by do-it-yourselfers or by small repair shops that are able to buy, you know, logic boards on eBay and things like that. But um, it really speaks to, uh, and distressingly so, the, uh, you know, kind of um, planned obsolescence aspects of, uh, of the computer industry. So, Jim, what was your favorite Mac? My favorite Mac? Well, in the vintage category, the Quadra 840AV. I knew you were going to say that. And I there's one, one behind two. you in a cabinet about <laughs> four feet away that hasn't been booted up in years. I had one of those, too. They were great machines. Yeah, actually, but my favorite, the 2CI. Oh, the 2CI was a great machine, too. I that, think both of those are officially called obsolete. Uh, I think you're correct. I but believe. you can run them in your web, on your phone. <laughs> the 2CI was released in 1989. Oh, yeah, that, that goes back a ways. And still remains, I believe, the best Mac that I ever owned. It was a great computer. Yeah, and I believe at the time I scraped every last penny that I had and borrowed money to buy it. I think it was around $6,000. Oh, yeah. Oh, they were incredibly expensive. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the, the computer uh, writer, John Dvorak, computer journalist, um, who, is, who is definitely vintage but not obsolete, Wrote years and years ago, and it still kind of holds. He called it Dvorak's Law, and that is that the computer that you want is always going to be about $5,000. <laughs> That's true. And that does not to say you can get it, can't get a fantastic computer for way, way less, but the one you really want, like in the case of like the new um, high-end Mac Studios with the Ultra chip in it. That's like, uh, you know, a $3,900 computer. So throw in a monitor and a keyboard and maybe in a memory upgrade or something, and you've spent five grand. So really, even now, in 2022, the computer you really want, not necessarily the one you can afford, or the one you'll end up with, but really that kind of nice high-end screamer is about five grand. So that's your field guide to current, vintage, and obsolete Macs. 
You can't always get them fixed, but you can at least run them in your web browser. This is Point and Click Radio on KZYX, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting in Philo. Next, we're going to talk about Wikipedia, that vast people-powered online encyclopedia. To quote from one of our favorite philosophers, Michael Scott from the TV show The Office, Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject, so you know you are getting the best possible information. It's funny, but it's largely true. Anyone can write anything they want about any subject, and wow, people do. In the nooks and crannies of Wikipedia, in the deep depths of Wikipedia, are articles about topics that are obscure, bizarre, funny, or just plain weird. Topics that you'd never see in the pages of Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's in those nooks and crannies that tonight's guest dwells. She is Annie Rauda. She is a neuroscience major at the University of Michigan. She's also a freelance writer, but more to the point, she's the creator and curator of an Instagram account called Depths of Wikipedia, where she provides proof of the account's tagline, Wikipedia is weird. Annie, welcome to Point and Click Radio, which, by the way, does not yet have its own Wikipedia article. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. For folks who aren't familiar with Depths of Wikipedia, and for folks who are driving, Mm -hmm. we don't want them to look at their phones right now, um, tell us about Depths of Wikipedia's, uh, of what it is and and its origins. Absolutely. I love Wikipedia. Um, And during quarantine, I was spending more time than usual on Wikipedia. Side note. Um, so was so so were many people. Um, that there was an increase in both page views and edits uh, during 2020. Anyway, <laughs> I um, I became especially like excited about all the weird articles, things like toast sandwich or list of fictional worms, just anything weird. And I started putting them onto an Instagram page called Depths of Wikipedia. In the past two years, it's grown. Um, quite a bit. I think it's at 800,000 followers now and 300,000 followers on Twitter. And really the thing is, is that I want to post the things on Wikipedia that either raise your eyebrows or make you laugh or make you go like, wait, what? There's no way that's real. Um, But in reality, it is real. Um, There are all sorts of examples that I could bring up. Yeah. Yeah. To give us a, to give us a flavor. I mean, give us a short sample and keeping in mind that this is a radio station that has to be FCC friendly. (laughs) Absolutely. There is a moonless earth theory, um, excuse me, moonless earth theory. I posted about yesterday um, about this professional who gained quote, a degree of international notoriety for his claim that blowing up the moon would solve virtually every problem in human existence. <laughs> Sounds crazy, but I mean, how do you know until you try it? Um, <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> um, there um, some recent posts. I posted about uh, skunk's terms, which are words that are transitioning in meaning. Um, one word is factoid. I think maybe a few decades ago, that meant an inaccurate statement that people believe is true, but 
But now when I hear factoid, I think, oh, it's a, a fun fact that is true. Another skunk term is bi-weekly. Bi-weekly, is it every two weeks or is it twice a week? Um, <laughs> also, another skunked term on Wikipedia is literally, which is widely used to mean figuratively. Um, so that's a linguistics one. And then I'll let me find one more example for you. Okay, there's a, <laughs> there's a Wikipedia article called PowerPoint Karaoke which is an improvisational activity in which a participant must deliver a presentation based on a set of slides they have never seen before. Oh, that's great. What a brilliant idea. It sounds pretty fun. It really does. <laughs> One of my favorites um, is uh, recursive, which, you, which I learned, of course, thanks to you, is recursive islands and lakes which yes. is a, a recursive island or lake is an island or a lake that lies within a lake or an island. Mm -hmm. And it has this great kind of barbershop mirror vibe, you know, at its extremes, whereas I think the, the most uh, deepest level of recursion is islands in lakes on islands in lakes on islands in lakes. <laughs> yes, it's true. The, the, that, the one that is the most, recursive is in northern Canada and previously there was another example that was on the list that was determined to be a hoax um so if you look at the talk page you can learn a little bit more about that wow wow and some of them are just like really just kind of oddly pleasing like list of Antarctic churches you know that's just <laughs> like I love that someone that a that that's a thing and that b there mm -hmm. is that someone out there or probably more than one person knowing Wikipedia decided that that needs to be documented. Yes. I think that's um, one of the cool things about Wikipedia. It's not just our depths of Wikipedia. It's not only entertaining and sometimes really, really funny, but it kind of speaks to the whole, what Hunter Thompson called the zoo of human weirdness, just the whole spectrum of things that our weird species is into and ultimately then feels like it's worth documenting. I sometimes say Wikipedia is weird or I say that I'm posting weird Wikipedia things, but in reality, most of the things that I'm posting are just things in the world that are very interesting and bizarre and that Wikipedia is vast enough to catalog. Yeah. Um, like meat-shaped stone. <laughs> exactly. There's a stone in Taiwan called the meat-shaped stone. There's a Wikipedia article about polar bear jail. Um, believe it or not, uh, polar bears, if they are unruly, um, this happens in northern Canada, I believe, they can be sent to holding facilities. Um, and that mostly happens if they, you know, interact with like human settlements or are a danger to humans. And they go to these little polar bear jails and then they can be airlifted away. There's a whole Wikipedia article about it if you would like to learn more. Polar bear jail. I found it illuminating as staunch eaters of popcorn. There was a recent post about the difference between mushroom-shaped and the butterfly-shaped popcorn, that the mushroom-shaped is less fragile and less tender. And we have both. <laughs> And so there will definitely be a side-by-side -side tasting. Well, now a taste <laughs> test is definitely in order. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you've also posted interesting things about some like behind the scenes things that Wikipedians do or debate or rage about with each other, like the, the Star Trek into darkness controversy, 
where for a good month or so, a dispute unfolded between editors on the English language Wikipedia as to whether or not the word into in the title of the Wikipedia article for the movie Star Trek Into Darkness should be capitalized. And you highlighted in the post what is really the highlight of the post, and that is over 40,000 words were written on the article's talk page before a consensus was reached to capitalize the I. What does that say about Wikipedians and in general? <laughs> there are uh, over 6 million English Wikipedia articles. And for every word that's on the, the Wikipedia main page that you see, there are, I want to say, about six times as many words written on talk pages determining what the article should be, uh, all sorts of things. There are all sorts of people that edit Wikipedia who have very strong opinions. And the you know generic, like encyclopedic, consistent tone that you see on Wikipedia, that does not mean that the people that are editing and writing these articles are really dry people. Um, when you press the, uh, the tab that says talk, um, on a Wikipedia article, you'll see these colorful debates um, on almost every main major Wikipedia article that you click on. And people will debate things from, should we catalog every episode of the show? Um, or should we include this photo? Or I don't know, all sorts of things. How should we divide the sections up? People are really um, talking about it in a way that's pretty democratic. And it makes me excited. I think that you see like platforms like YouTube and TikTok and Facebook in the news for content moderation, um, rightly so in the news for kind of like, I don't know, inconsistent content moderation. Um, whereas something like Wikipedia, um, when, it's, when it's crowdsourced like that, there's so much more transparency. You see exactly why something is included or why it isn't included. And if you're upset that something is or isn't included, you can head on the talk page and make a case for whatever you're thinking. That's really cool. That's a great point. So uh, I have to imagine with over 800,000 Instagram followers, you get DM'd a lot of Wikipedia pages. How do you, um, what's your curation strategy? I'm sure it's hard to impress you at this point. It is. I have no um, good formula. Uh, <laughs> some people will ask me, um, you know, what's what's the exact formula for a, a good, funny article that I will post and there is none um but I do like to do a certain level of um like it has to be understandable enough that a lay person can kind of get the humor pretty quickly while they're scrolling on social media so it can't be too deep in the weeds um but I also like it to be obscure enough that people haven't heard it there's some like you know quote unquote fun facts like you eat X amount of bugs in your sleep. Like everyone knows that. I think, I think people all know that. I don't need to post that. Um, so yeah, I, I do like things that are a little nerdy. I don't think that I require an obvious punchline. A lot of things I post are, I mean, in my opinion, they're funny, but they're, I, I, I struggle to explain why it's funny. It just is so random and out of context. I think that maybe it just defies, I mean, humor is subverting your expectations. So sometimes when you're scrolling on social media and you see, out of context. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, like there's a there's a Tupperware with the caption, a typical Tupperware. That's not funny at all, but but it's just not what you expect. So it, it makes me smile. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> just like things that are on one hand 
incredibly obvious and common, but yet because they're because they're elevated to the status of a Wikipedia, a global encyclopedia page, it just kind of makes them funny. Absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about a lot of things. I love really most most humor um, that involves exactly dressing up some like lowbrow topic in academic language. That always makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> so there are quite a few examples of that. So you get you. I think I read somewhere that you receive twenty to fifty submissions a day, or something like that. Um, is that is that accurate? Do you and then you just kind of call and do you do you do you go spelunking on your own? Is it some combination of all of the above? Definitely all of the above. I think that number is probably accurate, although it really depends. Um, I spend quite a bit of time on Wikipedia, um, editing or just reading for fun. Um, you know. <laughs> I think we've all been there. You just, you, it's like 3 a.m. and you're like, oh my goodness, why am I still reading about this obscure battle in World War II that I had never heard about before? But, um, but, but yeah, so I do um, encounter quite a few on my own. Um, I get a lot of submissions and so many of them are so funny. Um, it's great. I, I think that some people on the internet who are uh, visible, like they, they get, they get, hateful messages or just weird or creepy messages my inbox is amazing my inbox is just people being like hey I found this really fun fact you'll love to hear it um so I'm very grateful that I have such um wholesome uh messages every day but a lot of them are things that I've already posted because I've posted maybe a thousand or so um and then some some I have to reject because it's like it's just, I just can't really tell what the humor is. Maybe someone, you know, in their little mind, they were like, this is so funny. But, but if I, if I can't really see what's funny about it, then I won't post it. And now you've started doing live depths of Wikipedia shows. Tell us about that. And how can I go to, how, how can we get you to Mendocino <laughs> County and do one? <laughs> I, sh I really should. I, um, I'm in college right now. And so this is not my full-time job. This is just a hobby. Um, but a few months ago, someone invited me to do a set in their comedy show. I was like, okay, sure, whatever, I'll do it. Um, so I had a PowerPoint and I both showed some funny articles and talked about them. And I played a few trivia games and I, I had so much fun. I was like, I, I could, I could do a whole hour and a half doing that. So, so I, a few months later, um, did the first ever Depths of Wikipedia live show um, that was in March, and I just scheduled a few more. So I'll be wow. in D.C. and L.A. and New York once again in May. And it's kind of a mix of a lot of things. There's some improv type things. There is just some live trivia where the audience is participating. There's some, I, I think, kind of traditional stand-up comedy where there's one person in the front and, I mean, me in the front and people listening to me. Um, and I think it's fun. I, th I think that you definitely learn something and you hopefully laugh, which is what I really look for in a night out. <laughs> That's awesome. Totally. That sounds so good. So let me ask you this. What, if anything, has the Wikimedia Foundation had to say about this? Have you heard from them? Have you talked with them? Are they digging it? Yeah. I, I mean, I love Wikipedia. Um, I edit Wikipedia. Like I'm all on board, but I do understand that some people might think that I am exploiting the edge cases of notability or that I'm kind of spoofing on Wikipedia. And so I was a little worried that the foundation might be upset. Um, 
but but they're not it seems like they are very excited about it they sent me a hat a few months ago that says as seen on wikipedia um which was very nice i am like in contact with a few different people that work there and um actually a few weeks ago i met the ceo of wikipedia um her name is mariana iskander and that was very exciting and the the founder of wikipedia jimmy wales he recently followed the account so I would say, right on. I mean, it's possible <laughs> that there are some Wikipedians out there or staff members who aren't fans, but I would say as a whole, it seems like um, the Wikipedia like editor community and um, foundation is on board. Very cool. I can't imagine them not being. I mean, it's a celebration of Wikipedia and how can that be a bad thing? <laughs> that's, see, that's, that's what I hope people understand, but you never know. So all of this has made you a subject matter expert when it comes to Wikipedia. Um, and you've recently written some articles that are not about the weird and funny side of Wikipedia, right? I think it was one in Slate uh, just last week. Tell us about that and what has led to that kind of leap from the depths of Wikipedia to, um, to reporting about Wikipedia. Yeah, well, I mean... It's hard for me to label myself a subject matter expert because there's always so much more to learn. Um, but I, I do think you're right. I would, I would call myself a subject matter expert. Um, and I think that, yeah, first I made the leap from like enjoying reading Wikipedia to editing Wikipedia. Um, and then more recently, I started writing about Wikipedia and the article you mentioned, I published in Slate a few weeks ago, probably two weeks ago two weeks ago today, actually. And it was about how you can download Wikipedia onto your hard drive or a thumb drive or even your phone, because it is not as many gigabytes as you might expect. Um, Wikipedia is in English, 87 gigabytes uh, through a certain service called Kiwix. Um, and the article was about how downloads in Russia skyrocketed. Uh, I mean, after, really it started rising after February, late February when um, the war began in Ukraine, but particularly after the Kremlin threatened um, to block Wikipedia, there was a, there was a threat to the Wikimedia um, Russia community. And after that happened, um, the stats on Wikipedia downloads show that it just spiked in Russia um, because yeah, you can download Wikipedia and I mean, personally, I think it's very useful. I would really have to readjust my lifestyle if I could not look up um, all of my random thoughts on Wikipedia. And I think that clearly uh, people in Russia wanted a source that was less biased than, you know, maybe like the Kremlin media. So it was really interesting. I got to talk to some people in Russia. I got to talk to the Wikimedia Foundation. And I think that the article seems to be well received. Wow. Do you plan to do more uh, reporting on Wikipedia? Yeah, I would love to. I think, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people that know more about the ins and outs of editing Wikipedia. There are people that have done it for nearly two decades. Um, I've, I mean, Wikipedia is 21 years old and there are people that have been editing since the very early days. Um, but I do think that I seem to have a pretty good grasp at um, like the, the public perception of Wikipedia. Um, and so I really do enjoy writing about Wikipedia and connecting um, the like hardcore editors who are super into it, who've been doing it for a long time 
to the layperson who might know just a little bit about Wikipedia and that's curious to learn more. Yeah. And how do I want to ask this? Is any of this affecting your studies? (laughs) Being a a neuroscience major, seems like that would be a pretty demanding uh, um, uh, day job, if you will. Um, And now you've you've branched into something that is arguably, definitely related, (laughs) tangential to the brain, (laughs) but probably not on your curriculum. (laughs) Yeah, um, I... The, the the nice thing is that um there's no boss man that's telling me like you have to post this many times per day you have to clock in so if I'm busy with school I just I just like don't edit Wikipedia and I don't post on depth of Wikipedia and no one is sad no one gets mad I don't really have very many responsibilities um that are like quotas or time bound so that is nice the flexibility um but you're definitely right I I think I probably study a little bit less than I would have if I didn't um, have this going on. But I think the flexibility thing is nice. Like for school, I have deadlines, but for Wikipedia, I I, I really don't. Um, So yeah, I I was thinking about being a science teacher. My degree is in neuroscience and I would have loved to be like a high school science teacher. Um, But for a variety of reasons, like pandemic and this taking off, I decided that I'm not going to immediately um, start teaching. Um, I didn't student teach or get the teaching certificate, so that would be a problem as well. But um, I'm definitely going to continue freelance writing, um, doing these comedy shows, and I'm definitely not opposed to going back to school and becoming a teacher or doing something else. But for for a while, for the next few months or a year or so, I, I think it'd be fun to keep writing and just see what happens. Yeah. It's exciting. Well, we will look forward to following your exploits on your Wikipedia article. <laughs> and of course, on Depths of Wikipedia, we should let our listeners know um, that you can get to Depths of Wikipedia by going to the search engine of your choice and just typing that phrase, Depths of Wikipedia. Um, it's on Instagram. It's on Twitter. It's on TikTok. And, uh, but I, I, it's accurate to say, though, that Instagram is kind of the hub of, of, of Depths mm-hmm. of Wikipedia, correct? Yeah. Um, and uh, we definitely encourage everyone to check it out. It is, it is entertaining. It is, like I said, just a beautiful um, illustration of the zoo of human weirdness and, the, and also <laughs> the vast depths of Wikipedia. It really just brings home the fact that, wow, there is, there is an article here about just about everything. We are known to send posts back and forth to each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes even when we're just sitting a few feet away. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and yeah, just a reminder, too, that if you love Wikipedia, uh, a great thing to do is donate. But another great thing to do is to edit it. Um, if you make an account and you look on the left-hand side, uh, there are some tabs that say learn to edit and community portal. And if, if you want to start small, look at some cop like there are some um articles that are flagged for copy editing see if you can catch some comma mistakes see if you can check the citations and make sure there are no depreciated links there are all sorts of things you can do to contribute that's a great idea it's a really good point about donating i was going to mention that um that if you go to donate.wikimedia.org you can donate you know they they don't have they're not expecting a lot they have you know they say 275 two dollars and 75 cents five dollars if you use uh, Wikipedia or you spend any time noodling around the depths of Wikipedia as we do, 
Um, five bucks is not a lot to ask for such a basically bottomless source of entertainment and wisdom. I um, definitely agree. I think that um, the good news is that Wikipedia has enough money right now that they are like very stable. They're not going away. Um, they'll be fine. Um, and in the early days, that wasn't really true, but now it is. Um, and so they've been able to use some of that money to do more like open access outreach, um, which is great because I mean, English Wikipedia is huge. English Wikipedia has 6,400,000 something articles, but there are a lot of smaller language Wikipedias in um, particularly the global South um, that needs some more work. And so a lot of the funds that you donate will help information access all around the world. Um, and Wikipedia consistently ranks really highly on um, some of those services that like rank the best uh, charity to donate to. So, I mean, definitely give to Wikipedia. There are so many ways to contribute. I totally agree. It's a nonprofit. Don't forget. Yeah. And that yes. means that it's commercial ad free. Um, and if you give a little bitty bit, you know, if just a fraction of the people who use Wikipedia give $2, um, you can keep, we can keep it a uh, nonprofit. Yeah. Andy Rauda, thank you again so very much for, uh, for joining us on Point and Click Radio tonight, but more to the point for creating depths of Wikipedia, entertaining us, enlightening us, and celebrating this amazing, vast storehouse of human knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. Def Leppard playing behind us here, playing a tune called Encyclopedia. And I don't know about you, Toby, but I just have a burning desire to now stay up until three o'clock in the morning exploring Wikipedia. I have really gone down the rabbit hole in the last few days. <laughs> oh yeah, what do you got? I found some favorites. Something, uh, a, a, an entry for something called umaral. It's a folk term in Bologna, referring specifically to men of retirement age who pass the time watching construction sites, especially roadworks, stereotypically with hands clasped behind their backs and offering unwanted advice. <laughs> I, I want that job. <laughs> Here's something that has a name that you never knew had a name. Uh, Sundoku. It's acquiring reading materials, but letting them pile up in one's home without reading them. <laughs> I'm, I'm really good Everybody at that does too. that. Sundoku. Yeah. Sundoku. Japanese. It's a Japanese word. So here's another one that I found that is fantastic. It's an entry for a movie called Paint Drying. It's a 2016 British film uh, directed and produced by Charlie Line. And the film is about paint on a wall drying, lasting, <laughs> lasting for 10 hours and seven minutes. And uh, the film was created by uh, uh, Line in order to force the British Board of Film Classification to watch all 10 hours to give the film an age rating classification as a form of protest against censorship. That's magnificent. Kind of brilliant. Does, does it have closed captions? <laughs> <laughs> and the last but not least, something that I think that we all are familiar with, something called student syndrome. It refers to planned procrastination when, for example, a student will um, only start to apply themselves to an assignment at the last possible moment before its deadline. <laughs> This eliminates any potential safety margins and puts the person under stress and pressure. According to one academic source, 
It's done in order to induce a level of urgency high enough to ensure the proper amount of effort is put into the task. (laughs) Does that sound at all familiar to you? There's a little bit of... Each of the ones that you mentioned kind of hits a little close to home in one way or the other. I don't know if there's a a method to your madness or if that just was a coincidence. There's just a few of my... uh, of my uh, hit parade, having gone down the rabbit hole in the last few days. Depths of what? Depths of Wikipedia. Strongly, highly recommended. Go there, check it out on Instagram. Um, yeah, and you know, we talked with Annie about the importance of keeping nonprofits like Wikipedia afloat with donations, and the same concept applies to the radio station you're listening to right now. As we said earlier, we're in the midst of our silent drive, working toward a goal of $150,000 to support our building fund, the new facilities in Ukiah, and more. If you like what we do here at KZYX, bringing you local, national, and world news, music of all kinds, public affairs shows on issues affecting Mendocino County in Northern California, won't you consider joining us by becoming a member? You can do that by going to kzyx.org and clicking the donate button. And that is going to wrap it up for this edition of Point and Click Radio because we've got a date with Wikipedia. And the show returns at this same time two weeks from tonight. In the meantime, thanks, Toby, and good night. Thank you, Jim. Good night. Good night, everybody. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.